Welcome to Team Up, a podcast where we talk about team-based primary care in British Columbia. Hi, I'm Sarah Fletcher with the Innovation Support Unit and part of the team putting together the Team Up webinar series and podcasts. On April 22nd, the Team Up webinar series focused on the idea of psychological safety and teams. After the webinar, I got together with Dr. Morgan Price, Dr. Sean Ebert, and April Price from the BC Patient Safety Quality Council to discuss key takeaways and reflections from the webinar recently held on psychological safety. And I think this was, it was a great discussion. There was a lot of engagement. So really excited about having the chance to dive into this a bit today and, and see where our conversation uh, takes us. And I'm just wondering for all of you, what were some of the kind of big takeaways for you from the session and from the questions that came out? I think there was, you know, some great engagement, like you mentioned, and everyone was super keen on learning and talking about all these things that contribute to psychological safety. And I think sometimes they seem so simple, but yet they're so impactful. So when it when we talk about triangulation, for example, and it can happen probably just about on a daily basis sometimes with people, and it, it's just naming it, talking about it, and really understanding if it's an issue on your team. And I think that webinar really showed that people need to talk about it. And just that level of engagement was exciting to see. And triangulation really from the presentation that you gave was the idea that when people feel less safe in a team, they might be going to other people to talk about certain issues or couching the way they're speaking in different ways to not go directly to the source that's of right. whatever the, the, the challenges are. Yeah, that's right. I like how you distinguished coaching from triangulation. Uh, and that's really important. So sometimes you'll say, I don't know how to have the conversation. And so I'm going to go talk to somebody about how to have the conversation. And that's not the same thing as triangulating. That's right. Yeah. And it's really important to distinguish that because people need to talk. People need to have that safe space to talk about issues that they're facing, but it's how you go about doing it. And when someone is encountering that or witnessing it, it's how do you shift it to a coaching conversation um, instead of building a camp and uh, talking and venting and how about asking those key questions? How do you think you can go about dealing with this? What do you think you can do about this? How did that make you feel and digging in that way? And then really so much of it comes down to communication. Sean, thinking of your experience in teams and in practice, what are some examples of specific changes in communication that you've seen that can lead to improvements in, in team culture and increases in psychological safety in that context? Mm -hmm. Sarah, it's interesting. The what you guys have described is, in my mind, always a symptom of, of what's going on in the environment. And you have to, I think, be very deliberate about creating the space and enabling people then to have those conversations like you're discussing. And it can be as simple in, in our world, in the operating room, for example, as what's called a huddle, which people are familiar with. And it's focusing, for example, on the common objectives of the day and articulating any concerns we have as an individual or potential concerns that might be incurred over the day as a team. But even by doing that on a regular basis, it starts to normalize the act of actually speaking together. And I would suggest that then that can be expanded into more regular meetings 
and not just for the sake of meetings, but then the meetings become more directed, more functional, and that then builds the teamwork, builds the culture slowly over time. And I think there's that social side to, to those kind of regular huddles, too, that are so important, right, to kind of create that trust. Sean, you were saying that over time piece is a big one. And sometimes we think about, here's, a, here's an issue, and I'm going to work on the issue. But actually, it's the cultural shift over time. So creating those spaces, they may be a little bit awkward at first, or some people might not be participating the way you'd hope. But through that modeling, opening up those lines of communication, the culture starts to shift. And I think that can be setting an expectation. Sometimes we expect post-op, there's an improvement, right? Post-prescription, there's an improvement. But this is a slower cultural shift. Yeah, we talked about in the webinar how important it is to understand each other's roles and responsibilities and who we are. And that's that's super key. But like you said, Sarah, it's more than that. So who are you outside of work? And again, those things build trust and the foundation of solid communication and then using avenues like huddles and meetings to explore that and, and what you can do to learn about more about each other is, is super key. One thing I found interesting during the talk was some people describe specific kinds of behaviors that tend to lend itself to creating psychological safety. And they're the simple things like how we communicate or how we how we introduce ourselves to each other, a little bit of clarity, like you said, around roles, functions, responsibilities. But then I find that works itself up into even what we would call challenging behaviors where people are more vulnerable. They're willing to state issues and be open to feedback in a different way. So I think there's a gradation of behavior that is incorporated into creating a, a stronger psychological safety environment. One of the things that I've been thinking about related to that, Sean, is this idea of the use of titles and how if you use names, it can help to flatten those hierarchies that exist. And then just how hard that is when you're working in a whole bunch of different systems where using those titles is a normal part of like how you introduce yourself and how everybody else is introducing themselves and how that can be really, really challenging. And I know in, in our own team, we've had this, okay, everyone come up with your own titles of, of how you want to be introduced so that we can describe what our team does. But then I was like, oh, but is that recreating these hierarchies that we want to then move away from. And I don't know what the answer is, but there were some really interesting examples in the webinar of having a name tag day where instead of wearing your typical health authority badge or whatever people are, are wearing, to have these days where they make their own name tags that say, hello, my name is, and then something about what they actually do and what's important to them rather than their title. And I thought those kind of things in terms of like, how do you start the work? How do you begin to engage teams in this kind of, in shifting culture? What kind of re-engagement strategies have you all seen that have worked? One thing I've noticed, which is, is interesting, after the webinar, I started to think a little bit about the environment I work in, and we now are much more patient-centered, and that's what we aspire to. But when we bring a patient, for example, into the operating room, the person transporting the patient will introduce everybody by first name and then at the end it's like oh and you've met Dr. Ebert and I always pause at that and ask myself what is it about the circumstance that that doesn't allow me to be called by my first name and when I introduce myself to patients I introduce them so myself just by my name but I also um, make sure that I express what my function on the team is and I think that helps people then get past some of the 
historical hierarchy and power differential cultural issues that you know, we continue to grapple with. And so I've tried to encourage my team to think more about expressing themselves in the position of what their role is on the team. And I think that's helpful. Yeah, I agree. I think it's fascinating. Certainly for me, there's a little bit of, as a physician, I have a role there. And so at times, Dr. Price can be important. And I don't always like wearing it, for sure. In our academic group, Dr. Fletcher here never gets introduced as Dr. Fletcher, and yet she's Dr. Fletcher. And I'm much more likely as an MD to be introduced as Dr. Price than anybody with a PhD. I changed the way that I sign my name on my emails now after the whole Dr. Biden, Dr. stuff that came out early in the year. I was like, yes, I am going to own that. Which again is interesting when you think about then flipping that on its head and being like, you know what? If we really want to remove these hierarchies, we have to model this kind of stuff too. So it's interesting. So a little funny tangent for me is after I got my MD, I, I found myself reacting when people called me Mr. Price and I would correct them. It's actually, it's doctor, it's Dr. Price. And then it would feel totally wrong. And I said, but please, no, just call me Morgan. And actually that, I, I liked it and it's ended up staying that way. So I, people always call me Morgan now, but for a while it was really funny when I was, oh yes, Mr. Price. I'm like, no, it's doctor, but don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify, but, yeah, but don't. Exactly. But just Isn't call it's me very Morgan. funny, yeah. right? Acknowledge, but don't, no hierarchy here, please. Yeah. Again, I think it comes down to, and I think actually someone even put this in the chat, titles and roles, aren't they the same thing? And and they're not, right? And talking about who you are as a person and your role doesn't mean you have to talk about what your title is. And I know I gave some examples about just over time, there is ways to do it. I know my director never used to, she would introduce herself and she was just, she was part of the team. I am with the, this team and this is my name and this is who I am. But yeah, I think we overthink it. And I think it's just about having the conversation as a team. So the team just needs to talk about it and strategize what would work for their team and in terms of trying to really decrease that power differential and eliminating using titles and strategize together because every team's different. They do need to come up with strategies on how it's going to work for their team. Is it really an impactful thing on their team right now or is it not so much? And then figure that out. One of the challenges, April, with that too is every team is different, but even members may create a separate team depending on who's there. And I use that example because I know I interact differently than some of my colleagues. And I know that my team in their other team environment, so to speak, will interact in a different way. And I think that's a challenge that we then need to address systemically because over time that will change. But there needs to be, I think, some degree of consensus even when people come and go from a team. And that, that I think, is a different conversation too. Yeah, it's all those subcultures that we were talking about. And I think it speaks to the fact that this kind of culture change often has to come from leadership. If leadership isn't modeling the change, it doesn't seem to be so successful. And I think about, we've worked really hard. We've taken the Reinventing Organization, Frederick Laloux book, and everyone on our team has read this kind of graphic novel about how you become a more teal organization and really define roles and scope and change the way you're working. But I think it's really hard to model. It's a whole onboarding process. You have to spend that time up front to get people used to a different way of working. So when we think about in team-based care and in the healthcare system, 
the culture is so entrenched that these these small changes, I think, can make a really big difference. Along those lines, Sarah, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift gears for a second and with a more flattened team organization, so not a directive from the top to do stuff, there's still leaders and you wanna be able to encourage people to speak and contribute and help shift where we're going. And we really try to do that in our group. At the same time, for me, what what that means is I end up using a lot more mitigated speech, to use the word that you used before, which is that sort of softer, suggestive language of, it might be nice, wouldn't it be good if perhaps (laughs) we could, rather than saying, today we're doing this. And sometimes as a leader, there's a moment to be really directive and there's other times when it's when you don't. And sometimes I find that balance is really tricky. So I'd love to get advice, April and Sean both, on how you've approached that to have that more balanced, less mitigated but not directive kind of approach. Yeah, that's that's a great kind of example of how, again, you can address power differential in a, in a specific way. And when you look at how do you create high-functioning teams, sometimes you do have to find that balance between what I would consider leading and following and having good followership as a leader and giving people that room to grow, develop, and achieve their higher potentials when they're not used to potentially having that role. And what I've observed over time is that it doesn't take a long time to instill that kind of confidence in your teammates. And once they get used to that, then suddenly you see people functioning well within and up to their level of scope and whatnot. And also having the confidence to articulate when things are potentially not comfortable and that sort of feeds on itself. And when you look at high functioning team dynamics, gets you to that next level. So that's a great example in my mind of navigating that power, historic power differential and flattening it and allowing people to grow and evolve on the, on the team. Mm-hmm. And I think it's finding that balance of just figuring out, are you asking for some feedback from the team? And you can do that in soft way. <laughs> or are you asking for something? If you're really truly asking for something, don't mitigate your speech, be as direct as you can. Because if you're just hinting around, if you'd really like the team to do something, and you're just hinting at it, you're not going to get the outcomes that you want. So it's when you're really hoping for a certain outcome, be directive and asking. And I think there's a difference between that and, and just getting some general feedback on what do you guys think of this idea? Let's do some brainstorming on how we can get there. So just really distinguishing between the two is important as well. I think all of that's really good advice. And I think, Sean, to, to extend yours a little bit, is that something that Colleen Kennedy often would say is you have to go slow to go fast. You have to let the team do something that might be different than what you've planned or would have planned yourself so that that capacity builds. And what we've added into our process is an advice opportunity. So if we've got something that, say, is in my scope uh, or Sarah in your scope, but we want to get some feedback on it, we ask for advice. And we have actually a fairly formal process for that. And then, Sarah, completely within your scope, you could ignore all the advice you get. Nah, I don't need to hear that. It's good. Great. Thanks. And I don't think we've ever (laughs) ignored all the advice we get. It's always helpful, but we don't have to get a consensus or a vote or because it's within Sarah's role to make a decision in that area. So we've done this other approach to it. 
And also, I think with that clear, having a clearly established advice process, like it's not just you and I, it's anyone from the team who has an idea. We and we use Trello and we have a board, but anyone who has an idea can post their idea to the board. How about this change? Would this work? And then everyone has the opportunity to provide feedback. There's something about that opportunity to not be put on the spot and ask for advice and to have time to write and rewrite and edit what you're thinking about. I think having those spaces where it's not necessarily anonymous opportunities for engagement, but where people can really think about particular ideas, dive into them, take ownership of specific pieces. Can you thing to to that too is showing vulnerability. Whether you're a leader or informal leader, you don't have to have all the answers and showing your vulnerability and maybe not knowing what the right thing is to do and needing to discuss it as a team is really huge for building trust and transparency. And and that's, I think, uh, key as well when we're talking about um, this psychological safety and building that kind of work environment. And moving that clinically, I I agree, and getting the team to be able to work to their scope to contribute in ways that I find it so much more fun and so much better care when everybody, including the patient, is actively involved and the richness in that discussion is huge. I'll share one other little story from when, I'll say it's a few years ago now when I was fairly new into healthcare and a family friend came up and his, his doctor of many years had retired and he got this new young doctor and this friend grabbed me by the arm one day and said, I have this new doctor. I don't think he knows what he's doing. Confiding me a little bit at the side at a little family party. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, he keeps asking me what I want. And I, I then explained, this is how we've been trained now to work together as a team. And he was about to fire the doctor because the doctor didn't know anything. It took us a little while to process it together. But he's like, oh, okay, I'm going to go back and talk to him again. <laughs> And it worked out great. It's funny how those shifts, though, you have to be aware of it, too, even in that dyad of provider-patient yeah. team, and then even more so when you then are bringing in a broader team. And I think a lot of our primary care teams are dyads for the most part, or physician MOA patient or physician patient family, but now we're bringing in other providers. So conversation and being explicit about that to say, well, this is why I think that this is not just two brains for the price of one, a better brain in this area, better skills or better approach here that I can't provide the same way. And suddenly that that clicks for a patient. Yeah, that's a great story, Morgan. I was just thinking the patient factor is something that we, again, I think are not paying enough attention to in the early stages of team-based care because it's difficult and culturally people aren't as used to it. There are absolutely patients that are certainly more amenable to the whole concept and idea. But even as recently as last week, I, I have patients saying, well, whatever you think, doctor. And and that's an uncomfortable position to be in now. And part of the challenge is creating the space intentionally, but including the patient voice in that. And we've done a number of projects where we've done process mapping, which is hugely beneficial when it comes to looking at how we deliver service and how we deliver care. And even more importantly, getting feedback from patients in, in, in a systematized way, so with reported outcome and experience surveys. The richness of that information is it gives you th- other uh, ideas and thoughts that you otherwise wouldn't know. Yeah, reframing maybe the question sometimes is helpful. I know if I think about just the conversations I've had with my grandma, 
and her health care compared to my mom and her health care. It's definitely shifting a culture that, that many aren't used to and asking them just what is important to you? Okay, let's talk about how we strategize together on how to get you there. But it can be alarming for patients maybe, right? If all of a sudden they're being included, and they're not used to that. So I, I want to pivot our conversation a bit. One of our takeaways from the, the last webinar, which really focused on the in-plane site report and looking at racism in primary care, was we really want to work on this idea of being anti-racist in primary care. How do we bring that forward through team up and through everything we do? And when I was listening to your presentation on psychological safety, there's such a connection to cultural safety and how we work in this way. But then I was also thinking a lot of the things that, that we highlighted, mitigated speech, thinking about silences in your team and, and what they mean and if people are comfortable or not, are also super influenced by cultural norms. And I'm wondering, April, what you think and if you've done any work thinking about what would an indigenized perspective of psychological safety look like? How would it be different? And... Should we be thinking about that as we're moving things forward? And I know that's a huge question. It is a huge question. And I have to say that we need to ask that question. I, I think there's so many parallels to what we're trying to do with creating a, a culture of humility and safety for everyone, especially our Indigenous population. And so I, I think it's super important that we need to understand what that means and how we can work together on that. And doing so by involving our Indigenous population in these conversations to really understand what that means. Yeah, one comment I would add to that. In my mind, certainly, psychological safety is about creating an environment where there's an openness of the mind, the heart, and the will to be vulnerable, to allow those questions and discussions without fear. And absolutely, that requires a high level of trust. And that takes time. And, and in my work with Indigenous patients, it takes a long time. And even in my practice of 20 plus years, there was probably elements I was not aware of. I'm sure of it. And that's partly because of the context of our, our environment and all of the other elements that patients have to endure in various parts of our system that they would probably just out of respect not make me aware of. You know, getting to the place where we can suspend our voice of judgment, cynicism, and fear will allow that psychological friction, which I find is tends to be the historical structures, power differentials, and the positional thinking that our system's been based on. Yeah, that whole move towards high-functioning teams is completely parallel with managing the elements of psychological safety with cultural um, safety and humility. And I think recognizing that psychological safety is going to look different in different places and in different teams, and that you really need to have that kind of deeply reflective, I think, consideration of what are the norms. Every team is going to have a different culture, and, and I'm talking big C and little c culture, recognizing that silence in one team might mean that uh, there's not trust there. Silence in another team might very much be the way that people connect. And so I was thinking, particularly as we were highlighting kind of particular elements of cultural safety in the webinar, mitigated speech and silence being the ones that really jumped out, that I think it's just so important to take context into account 
across the board as we really think about this work as well. And absolutely bringing people into the conversation, April. And and then I'm just really interested in the idea of exploring what would psychological safety from an Indigenous worldview look like? How would it be different? And then what can we do in teams to ensure that is included in the broader efforts to support teams working in this way? One thing that I'm acutely thinking about across many different pieces of work right now and life is capacity. And we're in a place right now globally where we're at 14 months into a very long haul. And so many other things have come to the fore because of the situation and just they've, they've come up because it's the time for them to come up. What do we do to manage our own limited capacity while still moving forward? And is that in part showing the vulnerability as a leader to say it's a tough time and I'm feeling that it's hard. What else can we do without sinking ourselves in the process of trying to do too much? Such a a really important point, Morgan, in that the shortage of staff that we're seeing and the capacity issues that we're seeing given this pandemic is significantly impacting the psychological safety of teams. I'm doing some work with long-term care in the long-term care homes in an initiative and during our coaching calls, just hearing how significantly that's impacting these teams who were generally quite strong. There's a ton of resources around around psychological PPE, we're calling it, right? Because it's, it's super impactful and it is challenging. And I don't know that there is any right answer on how to deal with it. So April, what's the example mask equivalent of psychological PPE that you can recommend? What we've been talking a lot about is just really dialing it back and keeping it it to this simple basics. So just showing gratitude sometimes, you know, uh, teams just need to understand that there's some gratitude there for the hard work that's happening. How can we just on a daily basis show each other some gratitude and appreciation for the work that we're doing in these hard times? Just doing the little tiny things to show that appreciation. Thank you. So that one, I love that example because it it can be small, it can be larger, it can be a whole range of things. And you can't have certain other emotions at the same time as expressing gratitude. So many other things like fear and anger can't be there if you're truly expressing it. And pausing like before you start your huddle. Everyone just take a minute whether it's five seconds, 10 seconds, or 30 seconds to have some deep breaths and pause. And we used to think that was quirky and it's working and teams are really finding because they're, everyone's just go, go. So you get into a huddle or you get into a meeting and, and just taking that time to pause. Kelly started the webinar last week in that way. And it just can help ground people because guess what? They haven't had five seconds to even have those three deep breaths up until that point in the day. So super yeah, important. The pause is really key. Sean, I don't know about you. In, in The way my virtual practice is set up right now, I, I work with some shelters and the staff will often bring patients in. And if the staff are super keen, I won't get a break. Literally one patient walks out the door and the door doesn't even close before the staff says, great, now it's your turn. Whereas if I was there physically, I'd be able to keep the door closed for a minute, finish my note, take a deep breath, attend to how I'm feeling after that potentially intense encounter with somebody who's really struggling, they're homeless, there's addiction issues, etc. And then, okay, I'm ready to talk to the next person. But I miss that. It's so easy. Even our recording today, right, it was, okay, I've got a hard stop at 
1.30 before we start recording, and it's five seconds to 1.30. <laughs> we all then collectively took a moment before we started this, and that was really helpful for me just to take a minute or two that way. But I don't know about you, Sean. Is that happening for you clinically, that things can get stacked so easily? That's exactly true, Morgan. I've heard this from a number of colleagues that they actually find the virtual more challenging because they're not getting those artificial breaks or it, you don't have those natural break points with patients where you'll say, I'll just step out and get your lab form. And, and that sort of ends the conversation. So I've talked to a few colleagues that have struggled with that. And one way I've navigated that is I control my waiting room now. And I'll see when people pop up, but I will then be able to choose when to admit them. And I might be then taking a couple of breaths in between. And I found that helpful. And so I have had, I've taken a bit of control, which isn't too hard to do. My staff are heroic in how they manage things, but it's allowed me a little breath in between to regroup. You know, I want to circle back a bit to capacity because that's one of those areas that I try to pay attention to. And while I, I look at the various complexity of the work we do, I see a lot of what I would consider silver linings from the last year and a bit. And I also wonder as leaders, how to take advantage of the opportunity to take some of the cognitive load out of the system. And I see my colleagues, for example, particularly nursing colleagues, get what I think is overburdened by work that probably doesn't add a lot of value. And in a leadership role, I advocate quite strongly to build capacity by re-examining and asking the questions, is this relevant to our work now? Is this something in the system that can be re-examined and readjusted? Because I, I agree, we, we can't do more and continue to be healthy and provide good care. So I think there's an opportunity here. Sean, can you give me an example of like a clinical example of some of that work? In the rural setting, we tend to wear a lot of hats to have a service function. And we see a lot of policy come from top down that has no contextual relevance to our environment. Yet, we seem to be then obliged to perform these extra steps, if you will, to the point where we stop looking at the patients like we used to be able to because we're too busy ticking off checklists or filling out forms. And I will submit that I've examined some of these policies and some of them have not been reviewed for even decades and probably have very little relevance. And when you look at high-functioning teams, it flies in the face of developing systems to enable teams to function at a high level by trying to engineer processes to mitigate risk usually, but at the expense of what I would consider attention to patient, good patient care, and, and situational awareness. So that's been one of my notable things I brought to attention whenever I possibly can over the last decade. Sean, one of the things that you just said really stood out to me about timing. And I think we're at a time now where in the very near future, you know, teams are working differently right now that might be shifting ag again soon. So it's actually a really great time to be thinking about psychological safety. How could we work together better? What small steps um, could we take to actually implement kind of some changes for our team to build a more highly functioning team? So I'm wondering, maybe April, to you first, what do you think are the most common kind of first steps that people can take? What are some of the small changes that you've seen? If the team doesn't have trust, that is is the foundation. And we talked about leadership 
and strong leadership and modeling the way that that we want to have a safe culture is huge. The trust and leadership are, I think, the foundation and that strong communication. So again, it's being curious about what the team needs are, especially in the context of how things have shifted and transformed in in the last year and a bit. But the first and foremost step is talking about it. It's talking about it. It's taking that time and space to have those conversations. We talked about capacity today. We talked about many things and, and pausing. And But if you can't even carve out enough time to, to talk about it as a team, to really understand what's changed and what do we, what do we need to do to get into to the recovery phase of this pandemic because we've been in set in the response stage for so long so really making the time to to stop and think about that and talk about it with the team in a very vulnerable and transparent way and can i add that it, it doesn't have to be a big but it, it probably better to be several small exactly you know, yeah. so right sizing it that way so it's yeah. not so we have to do a retreat for a day you might want to and that's great and it might be something that your team collectively wants to do but it's also that ongoing piece standing agenda item at a huddle that you talk yeah. about right yeah, yeah. for or for having a huddle having exactly a huddle. absolutely exactly. yeah i would fully agree you both have mentioned having the space you need the dedicated time and space and that in my mind requires a real commitment from leadership and from upper management not that this is your add-on that you got to fit in this is actually part of your day and part of your work and it needs to be normalized and socialized and in my mind that takes people from having to have buy-in to being investors. I always like the idea of people investing in, in what they feel is valuable and important. And if we choose our purpose and goals properly, we don't have to seek buy-in. And that's what I think is foundational for creating that environment for success. The other thing I want to add into this, and I love this conversation, to add in the idea of the two changes that are happening in primary care. One is we're going the pandemic pivot and we're going to come back to a hybrid environment of remote and on-site. And our primary care network model in BC is also not necessarily co-located. So even if we went back to a fully pre-pandemic, it'd still be this hybrid model of people not necessarily on-site. We've learned a lot about remote. But coming back to a hybrid as a team is going to be really a new challenge. You know, I've, I've been learning a lot about a remote-first approach. Because there's that, again, there's another differential here that we're all doing this remotely today and, and we're all equal size boxes on the screen. But as soon as we are one box and there are five other people in a room somewhere or some other combination like that, there's a differential that happens again. And to be aware of that, and maybe that's a conversation for the next episode or a future episode, but I do think that's an important piece for us to consider to maintain safety to make sure that the power distance doesn't increase because of proximity to the clinic. This has been a lot of fun, guys. I've really enjoyed having you on, April and Sean. It's been really neat to dive into some of the questions I had from the webinar. And I, I hope that you've enjoyed this time too. This has been great, uh, Morgan, Sarah. Thank you so much. Yeah, really appreciate your time, you guys. Thanks for listening. And check out teambasedcarebc.ca for links to additional resources that can support psychological safety in teams. We hope you'll join us next time.